The reading is from Acts chapter 4, verses 32 to 5, uh, up to verse 11. The believers share their possessions. All the believers were one in heart and mind. No one claimed that any of their possessions was their own, but they shared everything they had. With great power, the apostles continued to testify to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and God's grace was so powerfully at work in them all that there was no needy person among them. For from time to time, those who owned land or houses sold them, brought the money from the sales, and put it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to anyone who had need. Joseph, a Levite from Cyprus, whom the apostles called Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, sold a field he owned and brought the money and put it at the apostles' feet. Now a man named Ananias, together with his wife Sapphira, also sold a piece of property. With his wife's full knowledge, he kept back part of the money for himself, but brought the rest and put it at the apostles' feet. Then Peter said, Ananias, why is it that Satan has so filled your heart that you have lied to the Holy Spirit and have kept for yourself some of the money you received for the land? Didn't it belong to you before it was sold? And after it was sold, wasn't the money at your disposal? What made you think of doing such a thing? You have not lied just to human beings, but to God. When Ananias heard this, he fell down and died, and great fear seized all who heard what had happened. Then some young men came forward, wrapped up his body, and carried him out and buried him. About three hours later, his wife came in. Not knowing what had happened, Peter asked her, Tell me, is this the price you and Ananias got for the land? Yes, she said, that is the price. Peter said to her, How could you conspire to test the spirit of the Lord? Listen, the feet of the men who buried your husband are at the door, and they will carry you out also. At that moment, she fell down at his feet and died. Then the young men came in, and finding her dead, carried her out and buried her beside her husband. Great fear seized the whole church and all who heard about these events. Thank you, Grace, and can I add my welcome to Davies. It's great to see you, and if this is your first time with us or you're visiting us, a very special welcome indeed to have you with us. Let's pray as we come to this bit of God's Word together. Heavenly Father, we pray, please, as we come to your Word, please give us in our hearts reverence, before you, help us to receive what you say, soften our hearts, open the eyes of our hearts that we might understand, that we might receive, that we might be changed by what you say. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. What do people love to see in their children? 
I think that'd be a great survey question to do on the streets. What do people love to see in their children? Or what about you? What do you love to see in your children or in your grandchildren or in your nieces and nephews? I guess there'll be a lot of different things. Uh, we love to see kindness in our children. We love to see respect for others. Uh, we love to see them trying their best. But speaking personally, one of the, the greatest things uh, and the things I most want to see in my children and my nieces and nephews and so on is them looking out for one another. You know, when you catch a glimpse of uh, brothers and sisters uh, looking out for each other, a brother standing up for his sister in the playground, or a sister sharing her lunch with her sister, um, or a brother sharing his toy with his brother, something like that. That is wonderful, isn't it? That's what we love to see. Certainly, that's the type of thing that makes my heart swell, and I'm sure that would be true for many uh, parents, grandparents, uncles and aunts as well. What do people love to, love to see in their children? And then another interesting question, I think, for a survey would be, what do people hate seeing in their children? Or rather, what makes a parent or a grandparent or an uncle or aunt sad or disappointed or angry? Hopefully, one of the answers to that question would be when they see their children lie. Or when they see their children pretend to be kind whilst really being selfish, or pretend to be obedient when really they're being disobedient. Well, as we watch this episode in, in the book of Acts, at the end of Acts chapter 4 into the first bit of Acts chapter 5, as we listen to Luke's description of the church, and as we watch how God interacts with his church, we get a glimpse of what God loves to see in his children and of what God hates seeing in his children. So what does God love to see in his children? Well, firstly, looking at chapter, the end of chapter 4, God loves seeing his children look after each other. In the middle of Luke's description of the church in this paragraph, there's a little phrase in verse 34 which really stands out. It's that little phrase, there was no needy person among them. As Luke describes that church, he says, there was no needy person among them. Now, that might not sound very extraordinary to our ears, but we've just got to remember that this was a group numbering about 5,000 believers in a world where they didn't have things like state benefits and disability allowance and things like that, sick pay, free health care. So not to have even one person among that group of 5,000 who was in need, that really was an amazing thing. That's not to say that everybody enjoyed the same living standard, but it was to say that everybody had a roof over their heads, everybody had some food on the table, and a pair of sandals on their feet. There was no needy person among them. And the reason for this is, was, is that the, the church was a sharing church. So just have a look at verse 32. No one claimed that any of their possessions was their own, but they shared 
everything they had. Now, this wasn't common ownership. Uh, verse 32 doesn't say no one owned anything. They simply gave it all, and it became part of a central pot. People still owned their stuff. It was just that they held on to their stuff very, very loosely. If we were to listen into their conversations, it would have been full of things like, um, do you need to borrow my such and such? Or how are you fixed for food these days? Or do you need a pair of sandals? Can I get you a pair of sandals? This was a sharing church. And it was a giving church too. Just listen to verse 34 onwards. From time to time, those who owned land or houses sold them, brought the money from the sales, and put it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to anyone who had need. Joseph, a Levite from Cyprus, also called Barnabas, sold a field he owned and brought the money and put it at the apostles' feet. So these believers held on to their stuff so loosely that when a need arose among the fellowship, they would actually sell their stuff and give the proceeds to the church so that the need might be met. Now we just need to remember that no one made them sell up. God didn't require it of them. The apostles didn't lay a guilt trip on them. They just wanted to. You couldn't stop them. They were glad to give. What moved them to be so generous? Well, we see that in verse 33. There was no needy person among them. Why? Verse 33, because God's grace was so powerfully at work in them all. In other words, the reason they were so generous with their stuff was, was, was because God's grace had taken a grip of their hearts. I think I've spoken, uh, I'm almost certain I've spoken from here before um, about a man called Arland Williams Jr. I'll not tell you the whole story again because you'll have heard it before. But the essence of his story, true story, was that he was in a, in a, in a plane crash um, he survived the initial impact along with five others, but he died a short while later because when the rescue helicopter came, he refused to be lifted up to safety because he wanted to save his fellow survivors. It's an amazing story of courage and love for his fellow man. But what I don't think I've told you before is the response from those he saved Soon after, one of the other survivors wrote this letter to his bereaved children. She said, this is Patricia Felch, one of the people your dad saved that frightful evening of January 13th, 1982. I'm so thankful that he saved my life. If it weren't for him, I would have died that night. But thanks to your dad, I have survived. He is a hero. I don't think anyone else would have done that for people they had never seen before. And here's the bit that I just want to, uh, to draw attention to. She says, if there is anything I can do to help, let me know. I will do anything to help you. Your dad gave his life for a bunch of strangers. I will do the same for you. 
Well, I think she is just like these believers. Because as they thought about Jesus and what Jesus had done in rescuing them by dying on the cross, they were willing to do literally anything to help his people, even if that meant selling their property. In other words, they, they felt the huge chasm between what they deserved and what they had received. They knew deep in their hearts that they deserved, because of their sin, God's righteous anger against them. And yet, because Jesus died on the cross, they had received forgiveness and friendship with God and an amazing future with Him forever. And so, itching for ways to express their gratitude to God, they delved deep into their pockets and give radically and generously and sacrificially to meet the needs of other brothers and sisters. Well, as we think about this and as we begin to think about how this might apply, I think we just need to uh, just take a minute or two to think about some of the uh, complexities and some of the biblical principles around helping um, our brothers and sisters in Christ in need. Let me just mention three principles um, that I think should be helpful. Um, firstly, um, as we think about brothers and sisters in, needs, uh, in need, um, I think the Bible teaches us quite clearly that we shouldn't uh, meet the needs of brothers and sisters who are unwilling to work. That might sound quite harsh, but that's a, that's a biblical principle. 2 Thessalonians 3, Paul uh, speaks a lot about it there. He says, the one who is unwilling to work shall not eat. Note he doesn't say the one who is unable to work. Um, and of course, uh, that's, a, that's a different story. There can be many different reasons why someone is unable to work, not always visible and obvious to us. But he says, the one who is unwilling to work shall not eat. He says such folks should earn the food they eat. That might sound like a political statement. It's not. It's a biblical principle. We shouldn't meet the needs of brothers and sisters who are unwilling to work. We would do better to encourage them uh, to work and help them in that sense. Secondly, we need to, another biblical principle that we need to just factor in to our thinking, we each need to look after our own biological family's needs. That's another biblical principle. 1 Timothy 5, uh, if a widow has children or grandchildren, these should learn, first of all, to put their religion into practice by caring for their own family. When you see a, a, a child looking after um, an, an, an elderly parent, for example, uh, whatever their arrangement is, whatever that looks like, that is a right thing. That is a really good thing. That's a beautiful thing. And that's the outworking of a biblical principle. We've got we to look at our own biological family's needs. Third biblical principle we should bear in mind as we think to apply this, and again, it's very clear in Scripture, we should prioritize uh, looking after the needs of our brothers and sisters in Christ. We should prioritize looking after the material needs of our brothers and sisters in Christ. Where do we get this from? Galatians 6, verse 10. 
as we have opportunity, let us do good to all people, especially to those who belong to the family of believers. We have a particular responsibility for hungry Christians. That is not to say that we should be cold and indifferent to those uh, who are in poverty, who, who aren't believers, not at all. But it is to say that being part of God's family, we should have a particular concern for our brothers and sisters who are in need, wherever they might be living. So three kind of important biblical principles, just as we think about helping out brothers and sisters in need. And I, I, think, I hope that should help us as we seek to apply this. I suppose, I suppose as, as, as we think about this paragraph and what that, that would look like in our life, I guess it means that we need to be on the lookout uh, for those within our own fellowship um, who are in material need and to be concerned uh, for them. And given that is probably, in our context in this church, given that's probably not going to be a very big number at this stage, it might, that might change, if it's not going to be a big number, uh, we should then consider our brothers and sisters in need in other places. Uh, believers who uh, don't have access to any employment opportunity where, wherever they're living. Uh, believers whose state doesn't generously provide or kindly provide, justly provide free health care and disability allowance or whatever it is. Believers who are really out in a limb. And I think this description of the early church's generosity, I think should inspire us as we think about our brothers and sisters in Christ. Because it reminds us that the Lord loves seeing his children look out for and care for one another. It's an inspiring picture so this Christmas, if you think, if you think to yourself, do you know what, I, I would, I, I want to give generously to brothers and sisters in Christ who are in need, you should do that. If you think to yourself, do you know what, I want to sell land or property or I don't know what to free up money to give, don't get yourself into debt. But unless there's that, you should, if you want to do it, you should do that. That would be a wonderful thing, a beautiful thing, and a mark of God's grace. Note, though, that I've said, and I've tried to be very careful with my language there, if you want to, if you want to, because if you don't want to, that's, in one sense, that's okay. You don't have to. These believers, they give gladly, not out of any sense of compulsion. And if you don't feel generous, and We've got to be honest, we don't always feel generous. If you don't feel generous, what's, what's, what's the right thing to do? Well, I don't think the right thing to do would be to, uh, to give reluctantly or to sell up and to, you know, to donate um, resentfully. Now, if, if you're not feeling generous, and like I say, we don't always feel generous, I think the answer here is to for the moment, just shut the wallet and open the Bible and to meditate on the grace of God and ask God for his help that grace would grip our hearts because that's the driver 
That would be a far more profitable thing to do than to give out of reluctance. Well, that is what the first thing of what God loves to see in his church. He loves it uh, when his children look after each other. And we have some food for thought there. Secondly, though, what does God hate seeing? We're on to the the first bit of chapter 5 here. God hates seeing his children pretend to be generous. Because as we go back into the early church, uh, yes, many people's hearts were gripped by grace, but there was one couple whose hearts were instead gripped by greed, Ananias and Sapphira. They were greedy, first of all, for approval. Perhaps seeing Barnabas being held up as this example of generosity, they felt jealous. Hearing everybody praise him for being so kind, it made them think, I want people to say that about us. I want us to be thought of as being generous. So they were greedy for approval, but they also loved money. They weren't really prepared to give much money away. So they wanted to be thought of as generous without actually being generous. Or as one writer puts it, they wanted a reputation for being generous without any of the inconveniences of it. And so rather than meditating on God's grace to transform their hearts and asking God and speaking to God and saying, God, you know, I recognize in my heart this love for money, but this also this love for approval. Help me with it, please. Rather than doing that, they hatch a plan. Chapter 5, verses 1 and 2. Now, a man named Ananias, together with his wife Sapphira, also sold a piece of property. With his wife's full knowledge, he kept back part of the money for himself, but brought the rest and put it at the apostles' feet. Now, what exactly did Ananias do wrong? Well, having sold the field and kept back some of the money for himself, he presented the rest of the money to the apostles as if it were the entire sum that he'd received for the land. In other words, he lied about how generous he was. You see that from what Peter says to him in verse 3. You have lied to the Holy Spirit. In verse 4, you have not lied just to human beings, but to God. You see it from Peter's questioning of Sapphira later on. Tell me, he asks, is this the price you and Ananias got for the land? Have you really donated the full sum like you have claimed to? How does she answer? Yes. That's the price we got. Maybe she added, I, I know it's a bit lower than maybe we're expecting or hoping for, but that's, that's what we got. We've given it all. Yes, that's the price we got, she says. They lied. Each of them lied about how generous they were. Now, we've just got to remember, they didn't have to sell the land. They didn't have to donate all of the proceeds or even any of the proceeds. 
If they'd used the proceeds from the land to go on holiday, that would have been fine. As Peter says to Ananias, didn't, didn't the field belong to you before it was sold? Yes, it did. And after it was sold, wasn't the money at your disposal? Yes, it was. There was no problem in them keeping back some of the money from the sale of the land. It was theirs to do as they wanted. The problem was that they kept back some of the sale from the land whilst pretending and speaking as if, in fact, they had given all of it. They lied about how generous they were to the church, to the apostles, and therefore to God. And I think it's fair to say that Peter is gobsmacked by their hypocrisy. Verse 3, Ananias, how is it that Satan has so filled your heart that you have lied to the Holy Spirit? Verse 4, what made you think of doing such a thing? Verse 9 to Sapphira, how could you conspire to test the Spirit of the Lord. In other words, he says to them, did you really think that God is blind? Did you really think that you would be able to pull the wool over God's eyes? Do you really think that God is cool with hypocrisy like this? And Peter's right to be gobsmacked because as we see, God really does hate hypocrisy and lies. He acts in judgment on hearing that he's been found out. Ananias falls down dead, as does Sapphira a few hours later. And this really is a very sobering scene, isn't it? Reminding us that God hates hypocrisy, especially within his church, and that he will judge it, whether in this life, as in their case, or in the next. And it reminds us that where we are playing pretend for the sake of our reputation or whatever reason, we must repent. We must repent because God sees it and he is the judge of all. Well, how does the church react to all of this? We're told in verse 5 and verse 11, great fear seized them. It's not a wrong fear of God. It's a, it's a right fear of God. It's a delighted fear of God, a trembling before God that hesitates before sinning. Their understanding of God has been, if you like, recalibrated by this event as they realize afresh that God isn't just um, kind and gracious and loving and good and generous, though he is, but that he is also not to be messed with. I wonder what your view of God is. I wonder, do you see him like Ananias, Ananias and Sapphira saw him? As basically harmless, as blind, indifferent to their sin. A kind of Santa Claus figure who, who, who threatens to give coal, but who never actually comes good on his promise. Or do you see him, do you see God as the church learned to see him? 
as gracious and loving and forgiving and generous and kind, absolutely, but also as a holy and powerful judge who is not to be messed with. I remember having my understanding of God recalibrated uh, when I was in my early 20s. I, uh, I joined a local gym, um, and as I, as I was signing up to it, the bloke there who worked for the gym put a contract in front of me, and he wrote in uh, that I was a member of his football club. It dropped my membership subscription, monthly membership subscription, by 5 or 10%. I can't remember. I didn't ask him to do that, but he did it. And I didn't ask him to take it out. But when it was pushed to me, I signed and put my name to it. And it bothered me uh, for months. Um, but I didn't do anything about it. I wasn't bothered enough to repent. Until one day, trying to justify it to a friend, they said to me, quoting the verse from Proverbs, the Lord hates dishonest scales. The Lord hates dishonest scales. And so I called the gym up and sorted things out there. I wonder, for anyone here, is there dishonesty? I don't know just asking the question, but is there dishonesty? Is there hypocrisy that you need to repent of? If there is, can I urge you to deal with it quickly so that you might know God's forgiveness and his pleasure and the joy of right relationship with God again? Let's pray as we think on this warning. Heavenly Father, we recognize who you are. We recognize that you are kind and generous and loving and gracious to us, giving us not what we deserve, but what we don't deserve. And we pray that your grace would be at work in our lives powerfully. But we pray too that you would recalibrate our understanding that we might never think of you as blind or is impotent, but that recognize that you are holy and righteous, that you are the judge of all, that we would rightly tremble before you, that we might not sin, but be delighted to serve you. Help us, we pray, in Jesus' name. Amen.